Let's start with communion. We'll start with communion. Sometimes we do it at the end, but um, I just, I, I want a little bit of time at the end to just kind of see what happens, but you guys can start handing that out, and I'll just, sometimes we need to go through this, uh, uh, just walk through what, what Jesus did, and it can be so easy to forget, you know, throwing up, uh, throwing up prayers and all the things that we do, and but you have to remember that it started in Gethsemane, where knowing what he was going to go through, for us, he was sweating blood. I mean, I don't know if anyone in here has ever sweat blood. It's very hard to sweat blood. You have to be such, at such a point of stress uh, that your body is reacting by actually putting out blood. And then, you know... It gets overlooked, but after they apprehended him, um, they took him back. And remember where the high priest, uh, he rips his garment open out of anger? Well, that was when they had Jesus blindfolded, and they were, everything okay up there? They were, (laughs) they had him blindfolded, and they were punching him saying, prophesy over who, who just hit you. And they also, it says in Psalms, that it prophesies that they pulled out his beard. They, I think that was probably the place that they pulled out his beard. And from there, the scourging with whips, with a whip, with, with pieces of metal, animal bone and glass attached to the whip so it rips through them it was it was not 39 stripes that's the jewish law the romans the romans were the ones applying it the 30 the so it was probably endless number of stripes uh, to the point where it says in psalms also that my bones are showing and then they take him and the roman soldiers put thorns on his head and beat him up. And if you count the numbers, over 80 guys took a shot at him. And, and I think by that point, I mean, if 80 guys take a shot at you, you know, if we could put the sculpture up. Can we put that other picture up just to show the difference? Like, I feel like there's another picture. See, I mean, that looks bad, right? But the Bible says he was not recognizable. That's what that word mauled, marred beyond any man. It was more like the sculpture. Can we flip back to the sculpture? Just beaten to a pulp. And then he tries to carry the cross. It must have been a relief by the time he gets up there and lays down thinking, we're finally towards the end of this. Nails through his hands and feet, stretched out, knees bent, feet together. They pound them through. They flip that cross over. Pound those nails down in the back. And then I believe this is disputed, but I believe they drop that cross into the hole because it also says in Psalms that his bones were out of joint. So scholars think that's how his bones got out of joint. And he hung there for six hours. And that's, that's... you have to keep that in front of you. You can lose that and all the busyness that you have a God that came down as a baby that was born to die for you. So he took the bread and he broke it. He said, take, eat. This is my body that was broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy, for your grace, for your healing powers. The the cup represents the blood. This is a covenant, you know? This is very, God's a covenant 
God. This is a big deal. This is not a formality or a tradition. It should not be treated as that. Otherwise, the Bible says that it's, it can be harmful if you don't understand why you're taking it. And so this represents the forgiveness of sins, every, every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future. It's called the remission of sin in Hebrews. The definition of absolute remission is forgiveness and cancellation of every single penalty for every single sin you'll ever commit. He did that on the cross. He took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant, cut in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future, for taking our our place on the cross for being our representative in that covenant in Jesus name amen you guys can be seated we're going to go ahead and, and take the offering and I you guys can bring those uh, offering buckets up and as you prepare your offering, we ask um, that you use an offering envelope lo- located on the seat back in front of you. Um, if you're joining us online, want to welcome you, our online church today, our online community. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Um, please see the various ways you can give on your screen. You can text to give, give online, mail your gift to the address on your screen. And so we're just going to go ahead and pray before you guys hand these out. Father, this is an actual form of worship. We are are putting our, literally putting our faith in you here, Lord. It is a form of worship. It is a form of honor as we honor you with, with our first fruits. Or if we are planting a seed, we just honor you. We thank you. We thank you. We're we're acknowledging. We're acknowledging that you are first with us today. Do with this as you will, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So, I just have one announcement. Um, Dad... Um, call me this week, and what, what, what they have to do next week um, is they have to do a bunch of test flights on this Falcon 50 to make sure that it is able to, he wants to take a small team down to the Dominican Republic in early August as like a pre-plant kind of thing. You know, it's hard, you, you don't just fly down there with a bunch of people and say, here we are. You, you have to go check it out, and that, to, to have that plane ready to do that, um, you're going to have to be with me again next week, and I'm so sorry, okay? I'm going to set a record here. This will be 10 this summer since early May, and it's an honor, and it, it's an honor to, to do that, and I thank my parents that, that they somehow allow me to do this over and over but um, so I'm just letting you know I will be here one more Sunday. And then after that, uh, Andrew Womack is in town, okay? And yes, and um, then Dad will be back on Sunday morning that first weekend in August, okay? And so, but right now we are in number three of the series called Revelation Revealed, Today we're covering Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. We're usually going to do more than four verses, or we'll be in Revelation for a year and a half. But today it's only four verses. This is the second letter to the second church that Jesus is dictating to the Apostle John. As we stated last week, all these churches saw all seven of these letters even though each church had one particular letter written to them. This this is going to make you think. This is, uh, 
This is going to make you think. It's going to make you uh, kind of just, just evaluate yourself in a way. Um, so, <laughs> I, I don't know. Last night it was pretty somber. Um, but it's, it's in the Bible. You need to hear it. It's the real thing. And it's something that could be coming. It's something that churches in this world are going through. Uh, but before that, uh, l- let me just say that I have a 14-week-old golden retriever. And, uh, and so some Sundays, uh, a family keeps him for me. I run, and I run him down after the Saturday night service to Minnetonka. So he doesn't sit in a kennel for six hours on Sunday, all right? And so I was doing that. I went, picked him up, and I'm doing that. I'm on uh, 494, and uh, I was kind of in a hurry, and I was kind of in la-la land. I was thinking about the service. And, um, but I, I, was, I remember being subconsciously agitated because in the left lane, this guy was doing 58 miles an hour. You know, it's three lanes, 494 South going to Minnetonka, and it was three lanes. And I'm just, I'm not like angrily, you know, that kind of tailgating, but I'm tailgating him. I'm just, I'm kind of like, no, I'm not moving over. I'm not passing you. You should not be here. You need to move over. And it just went on for, for probably three or four minutes, and he finally blinkered and slowly moved over. And I drove by him, and I look, and it's our assistant program director that I'm <laughs> passing. Uh, I, I kind of went like this. I, so I don't know if he caught a view of me, but Drew Clapp, I'm sorry. I was tailgating you on 494. You shouldn't be doing 58 in the left lane. But this is why we pray for mercy. That's why we pray for mercy. So... But before we get into verses 8 through 11, I did make uh, a five-minute addendum last night to something I said last week based on more information on the Nicolaitans, and uh, that was in uh, verse 6 of chapter 2, um, this verse where Jesus is saying he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, just like the church at Ephesus, and he was commending them for this, um, and uh, I gave a real detailed rundown on that last night, but I will just tell you um, that they were mixing occultism and paganism into Christianity and just kind of flowing, merging the two almost. That's what the Nicolaitans were doing. And uh, I found that in an incredible book by Rick Renner called A Light in Darkness. Um, the seven letters to the seven churches that someone gave me uh, in this congregation a few weeks ago, just uh, out, out of when I was in the Daniel series. And so it's an incredible book. On this, and, and so, but if you wanted to hear more on that, you can see the Saturday night uh, on YouTube. That's all I have time to say about the Nicolaitans. And so uh, just a little bit of review if you haven't been here in Revelation 1.11, he just is Jesus talking to John, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book. Send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then uh, 1.20, Revelation 1.20, the, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, And the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are seven churches. And so Jesus had uh, seven stars in his right hand. And as we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, more scholars believe those seven stars are are actually pastors. And we talked about the multiple reasons for that a couple weeks ago. And so these letters to the seven churches are meant for us to look carefully at and heed their points, uh, heed their warnings, their commendations. All of it is to the body of Christ internationally, to the church today. The book of Revelation is talking about the last days on fallen earth and what a coincidence, it just happens to write seven letters to seven churches 
one chapter before we're gone, because we're gone in Revelation 4. We're watching all this. And so I think different, this is, these are pitfalls. These are, these are hints for us today. And um, this was 96 AD when John penned this letter. And you're going to see that everyone of these seven churches is going to learn something about themselves that they were not thinking about themselves. Remember, some of these churches thought they were doing great and they weren't doing great. And that's got to make you think about the assessment that we have of ourselves and not just as individuals, but our church. There's probably a variance from the way we think the Lord sees us to the way he really sees us. Just looking at these letters to these churches and how there was a variance on what some of them thought about themselves to what Jesus thought about them. And really by looking at these letters, we're finding out, in my opinion, the agenda of Jesus Christ for the body of Christ in these latter days. These last days on fallen earth that we get to be a part of. What the pitfalls are, how to avoid the pitfalls, and in some ways what's coming. Um, you know, you look at this, this one makes you think here. Because you, you're thinking the whole time, what would I do? How would I react to this? Uh, Revelation 2, 8, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and alive, and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. Thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. You shall have, have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death. I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Let him Hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. That word Smyrna, that's the church we're addressing today, is a Greek word with a Hebrew root. The word Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh is made from the gum or the sap of certain trees and plants in a region in Ethiopia. It's used in perfume, anointing oil, you can see myrrh being used in purification of women in Esther chapter 2. The main uses for myrrh were for pain relief and embalming. The way myrrh reveals its famous scent is when it is crushed. And that's interesting because this lines up with the church at Smyrna. It's literally being crushed in every way. Think about the three wise men at Christmas. We think about this uh, usually around Christmas, the three wise men who are really magi bringing Jesus as, as an infant, three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Many of you probably know this, gold is, is, a, is a shadow or a type of royalty in the Bible. Frankincense is a type that speaks of priesthood, and myrrh is a type of suffering and death. Interesting enough, enough in the millennium, Jesus will be given gifts of gold and frankincense, but not myrrh, because the death has already happened. He's already given his body for us as a sacrifice for every sin we'll ever commit and every, every sin we've ever committed. Smyrna is located approximately 40 miles north of Ephesus. That's who the letter was to last week. And it not only had a harbor, but it had a double harbor. It was strategically an incredible place. It has a big harbor, and then they could have put a chain across it, and it goes into a littler harbor, so they, they could keep enemies out with a big chain going across the smaller harbor. Um, today, at this present time, what used to be Smyrna is a, a city in Turkey called Esmir, which is the third largest city in Turkey with over 300,000 people. But at the time this letter was being written, Smyrna had about 100,000 people. It's obviously with the double harbor, deeply involved in the shipping in industry. It was a major exporter of olive oil, cotton, tobacco, grapes, and figs. 
Um, largely because of the double harbor, it was a major trading port. Uh, was a gateway connecting Greece to the Middle East. There was there were ph- philosophers that described this city at the time as the most beautiful city in the world. In the four, how did it begin? In the fourth century B.C., Alexander the Great ordered one of his generals to build a beautiful city. Hence, Smyrna. Smyrna was also called the Flower of Iona. Iona was a a Greek city-state. In in 27 BC, Smyrna came under control of the Romans. Smyrna played its part, allied with Rome in numerous wars. Uh, Smyrna was a favorite of Rome. Rome loved Smyrna, and Smyrna loved Rome. And they enjoyed a lot of prosperity for a number of centuries under Roman rule. Smyrna was a pagan city. They had a huge temple to Zeus, who was considered the father of all the gods, but we know he's not. There were shrines to Apollo, the sun god, shrines to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, the primary of goddess, the pagan population of Smyrna worshipped. Primary goddess was the goddess called uh, Sibylle. The worship of Sibylle was considered completely out of control with no restraint. Anything went. Sibylle was called the goddess of the giver of wealth. One of the most interesting things about Smyrna is they were one of the first cities to sponsor something called Caesar worship under the Romans. They built a temple to Tiberius in 26 AD, and this worship of the emperor for most of the citizens of Smyrna was a gesture. There was a type of formality. Each year, each citizen of Smyrna had to take a pinch of incense and, and toss it in the, in the fire on the altar and give a public an acknowledgement that Caesar is Lord. And they had every kind of individual in the empire could worship whatever gods they wanted, but this was a required political statement that had to be made by every citizen. And the Romans were simply trying to get everyone in the empire to acknowledge Caesar is the number one god. And they were also trying to integrate all these elements and all these different tribes that they had conquered into the empire. And when you throw your little pinch of incense into the fire, they gave you an official document that you had to carry around. And you had to do this action once a year, and that document, you you would carry it around. So this was the first major, major problem for the church at Smyrna. There's a whole group of Christians that we don't have time to talk about. It was very controversial that went ahead, threw the pinch into the fire, proclaimed Caesar as Lord, then tried to come back into the church later. And, you know, these church members had people burned at the stake, family members that wouldn't proclaim Caesar as Lord. And so it was a big, a big controversy. I don't have a lot of time to talk about that. Um, but we know, you know, if there were a lot of Christians facing death today, there's a lot of them that would throw the pinch into the fire and proclaim Caesar as Lord. Just speculating. Death. We're talking death, burning at the stake, or eaten by wild animals. Have you ever seen those, those pictures of those, those coliseums? You'd have the ten Christians huddling in a group with lions I mean, can you imagine how that scene would look? I mean, can you imagine going through that? And so these Christians would willingly be burned at the stake, hundreds if not thousands in this particular region of the world. Because they refused. They said, no, we're not saying it. And there's documented cases of the Romans just saying, just say he's Lord and you can live your normal life. No. We're not saying it. So this was just the beginning for the, of the problems for this church. Most of them, you know, it was all public, publicly being burned at the stake. Others were publicly fed to the lions. You can imagine facing that kind of death. You, can you imagine the seriousness of that kind of faith? 
Verse 8, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and, in, and is alive. This is the name Jesus gives himself here. First and the last, which was dead and is alive. Really the Lord is telling them by saying, I was dead. He's telling the church of Smyrna that he gets their situation. The word was comes from the Greek words genoni, gives the idea of an unexpected turn in events. What does that mean? We have a God that came down to earth and as a baby. His bassinet was an animal trough. I know most people picture him in a, in a, in a barn with a bunch of cute animals. But most scholars believe it was a cave. Was where he was born. And our God submitted himself to a horrible death by, the, by, the, by his creation. And allowed his creation to take that out unto him. And that's when Jesus became dead. The Apostle Paul was amazed at the humility of our God that he would put himself through this horrific type of death. Jesus Christ temporarily became dead, and that word dead in the Greek means corpse. There's a theologian named Albert Barnes that gives some insight, said Jesus triumphed over death in all its forms, and now it's alive forever. It was appropriate that he should promise to his true friends the same protection from that second death. Verse nine, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. This is a deep verse. This is Jesus addressing the church at Smyrna and using Rick Renner's breakdown of this word. He's, he's a Greek scholar. I know thy works. The word know is, is um, oda. And this is describing knowledge that Jesus obtained through literally, ob, literally personally observing the church. Think about that. He he's personally observes this church. That, that, that's how that, the Greek is rendered there. Remember in Revelation 1, we have him walking in the midst of the golden candlesticks. The phrase, I know thy tribulation and poverty, is saying that Jesus completely understands what the church of Smyrna is going through every single day. This was the only church out of the seven churches that are getting these letters where Jesus uses this word tribulation like this. This Greek word that is used for tribulation here it's not the seven-year tribulation, um, but this Greek word started out, the definition of this word was someone, person tied up, laid on his back, and then a huge boulder was put on top of him until it completely crushed him. That was the meaning of that word. That was the original use, but eventually the meaning turned out to be as a situation that is crushing, debilitating, a dire situation, a dreadful situation, a grave situation, and a humiliating situation. Remember now the words that Jesus is speaking. All these churches are going to see these, this letter. Looking at the phrase, I know thy tribulation and poverty. Really by using that word tribulation, the way that's used, the church at Smyrna was going through a murderous ordeal. And, and you can see that. He says, I know your poverty. This word is referring to a unique kind of poverty. There's one Greek word that describes poverty as just making enough to get by, but having some, some type of income, but you're still poor. This is not that. It's, it's the type that means total impoverishment. These people have absolutely nothing. It's implying most of them are homeless at this point, are on their way to being homeless, and in the pagan world, if you were impoverished, impoverished to this, that extent, you were considered a social outcast because they considered you, you judged by their pagan gods. They thought you were cursed. And, you know, if you read between the lines, you can see that these, the Sumerian church, uh, church the Smyrnian church believers were dealing with something that was not completely normal for them. They, were, they weren't just people with lack that didn't just quite have enough. Uh, they were destitute, 
And, and, and another reason why there were trade guilds in the Roman society, similar to what you would call a union today, painters, tanners, idol makers, doctors, every kind of job, professionals, blue collar, all of them had to be part of these guilds or unions. They were so powerful, they controlled everything, prices, services. You couldn't have a job unless you were a member of one of these guilds. And the crazy thing about these unions, they were called collegia. These things were very connected to the occult. Pagan worship was a major part and just to get into this union, you had to offer a sacrifice to an idol. Each little guild group had a patron god, and you even had unions for the, 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 for the poor jobs. People that didn't make much money still had to be in these unions. So the, these collegia, as they were called, would often have regular celebrations with pagan feasts, sometimes sexually perverted activities, these Christians weren't able to get into these workers' unions because they didn't want to have to do any of these sacrifices and, uh, they, and take, take part in the partying and the sex which occurred at these union or collegia meetings. So it's believed that this collegia came into effect and the context in the Greek makes it look like these believers at Smyrna were once financially secure and connected. And they went from financially secure to without a job, and now they were just completely destitute. Why? Because they refused to bow a knee to the worldly requirements of the occultic pagan world in Smyrna. It, it kind of get a glimpse here in Hebrews 10.34. For you did not sympathize and suffer along with those who were in prison. You did sympathize and you suffered. And you bore cheerfully, they were cheerful, the plundering of your belongings and confiscation of your property and the knowledge and consciousness that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. They really must have possessed something. Because it says they did not lose their joy. And that phrase in the King James, it has the phrase spoiling of your goods. And that means their stuff, if you look in the Greek, was carried off or confiscated by either mob riots or the authorities. So this had happened to them. It's the same word that Jesus uses. The Greek word used in Hebrews here is harpage, and it's saying that these believers, uh, their homes, places of work, businesses were completely pillaged. And many scholars believe it was done by the Jewish community to the people in Smyrna. The Jews had a big hand in it. And it's backed up in historical writings of the early church. Also, the Jewish community uh, was a complete menace to these believers in the city of Smyrna and were probably the ones, many scholars believe, that confiscated all their stuff. And if the Jews did it, and they were so holy, right, then for sure the pagans were doing it. And where was the help? Well, the help is in the Roman troops. But the Roman troops weren't going to help them because they're, they're too busy burning them. They're not throwing their little pinches in the fire. They're outcasts. So they have no, no help. No help at all. Revelation 2.9, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of which them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. That word, thou art rich, that's the Greek word porous, and it's talking about a person that's really, really rich, and this is the word Jesus uses. But, but look, he just called them financially destitute. So their extreme richness for these believers at the Church of Smyrna was a more valuable form of riches that had nothing to do with money. Can, I mean, can we really put ourselves there? I, I, we just, I, you know, 1 Corinthians 1, 5, same word here. In everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and all knowledge. This is describing the church in, at Corinth as having a wealth of spiritual gifts. Ephesians 2, 4, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, same word here, 
that Jesus uses. Think about these Sumerian believers had nothing. They had no legal protection, and from this they've lost everything, as poor as you can be. A lot of them didn't have homes, and these are the people that many scholars believe had been once financially secure. Imagine the fellowship with these people. Maybe that was part of the richness that they had with each other, the close relationships, the level of fellowship in this church was probably uh, incredible compared to say the United States where our rights are completely protected. Think about these guys met probably in underground illegal meetings and you can see why they greeted each other with a holy kiss because they didn't know if they would ever see each other again. I love you, Dustin. Next day, Dustin's burning at stake. Sorry. I'm just saying it would mean more, wouldn't it? When you said bye? When you said have a good week? (laughs) Can you guys imagine, or, or maybe even when the entire congregation, if this congregation lived with the constant threat of arrest, seizure, violence, death, think about the deep, relationships that would be forged just naturally within the members of a church. Just think of the worship. I mean, the worship would be, it wouldn't be just, is that that over yet? (laughs) Not saying everybody's doing that out there. You know, how they had to have cried out for God under this constant danger. Think of how you would worship God in that situation. (laughs) Not knowing if you're going to be caught in the parking lot, publicly whipped, beaten to a pulp, thrown into jail for a month, and then burned at the stake in front of your family. Would you attend that? Imagine the hunger and the connection and the relationship with God. The worship. Imagine the depth of friendships and connection in that church it probably really was like a family. And then you have to think, you know, and none of us really know, but it's just good. I mean, how many of us would, would we throw that pinch and just say, Caesar is Lord. Jesus, Jesus forgave me, right? Jesus died for my sins. Caesar is Lord. If your house was up for grabs the next day even, maybe not even your life, but you're out of your house. If you don't do it, they're coming to get your stuff. Imagine living in that type of society where in the end you could be burned at the stake, eaten eaten by wild animals. In the meantime, your business is pillaged, looted. All your belongings are confiscated either by authorities or riotous mobs. But that isn't even the end. But these people held in their faith. How? 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 Think about that. They had to have had supernatural strength. They had to. What kind of relationship with God would that take that they went through all of that simply because, put the sculpture up, because they believed that. And they were thankful for that. This was the most important thing in their lives by a long shot. Because this in Revelation Um, because we're not gone until Revelation chapter 4. I wonder if we'll ever see something like this in the States. It's not something that I would want. You know, there are churches that see this. Northern India, it's called the Graveyard of Missionaries. That's the Hindus killing them there. Think about this. Their jobs lost, property seized, reputation destroyed. They were made outcasts by pagans and the Jews. But we have Jesus telling them they were rich. And these believers experienced a different kind of richness, obviously, probably from their uh, almost unbelievable faith. A richness in the presence of God. Uh, imagine the presence of God how, when they gathered how Jesus must have just loved them. Just to keep them going. 
They had to have been hooked to something. A richness in their interpersonal relationships. A richness in the strength it took not to take a pinch of incense and throw it in a fire. And before we get into this, this next little part of the verse, three of my best friends are Jews. This is not a referendum on the Jewish people, what I'm about to do here. I don't believe the Jews have been replaced. I believe they're still God's people. I believe we've been grafted in. I, I, I try to bless Israel and bless the Jews every time I get a chance. And you can easily flip this and look at what the Crusades did. They killed thousands of Jews. Was it William the Conqueror? He didn't just kill Arabs. He killed thousands of Jewish women and children. Was that William? It was Richard. Wow, history buff there. But you can flip the whole thing. This is not a referendum on Judaism, okay? And, and, and let's look at the phrase, I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. This is the kind of blasphemy, that word that means to speak without respect to God or about God. It's not that one, all right? This, is, this means any type of debasing, nasty, shameful speech or actions that are intended to completely humiliate someone else. And you can look it up in 1 Timothy 1.13. You can see this word again where Paul actually describes himself as a blasphemer before he had the vision of Jesus and became saved. Paul uses this word to say that he purposefully mistreated and humiliated Christians. He also said he was injurious towards them and was a persecutor of them. And the Greek word for persecutor is the same word used to describe a hunter who's hunting animals. He told Agrippa that he, in essence, was the lawyer that argued to send them to their deaths. This is Apostle Paul. So we know he probably dealt with some guilt, did he not? Let's look at uh, 1 Timothy 1.13. Paul, who was a blasphemer, same word as Jesus used, and a persecutor, injurious, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The word injurious is the Greek word for a sadist. He enjoyed it. And this particular Greek word, the definition is one who has pride and insolence and deliberately and contemptuously mistreat wrongs, hurts another person just to humiliate the person. The reason Jesus calls them blasphemers is because you can see in Luke 19, or Leviticus 19.34, the Israelites were commanded under their law to treat the Gentiles or non-Jews who lived among them with respect. And these teachings of the Jewish Torah completely disallowed speaking ill of someone, trying to purposefully ruin that person's reputation, making false accusations against someone that hurts their reputation. Publicly humiliating another person was considered blasphemous in the Torah. And what we're talking about is very religious Jews who are persecuting Christians, and we don't know exactly what they were saying But we do know the Jewish community in Smyrna was a big contributor to the intense dislike and hatred from the city towards the Christians at Smyrna. The Jewish community aggressively contributed to publicly humiliate and denigrate, and they tried to lower the status of the Christians in every way they could. And Jesus said they committed blasphemy according to the Torah by spreading half-truths, trumped-up charges, lies, slander, accusations about the Christians, and rallied the, the Smyrnaean population against the Christians. And it's true from historical records. I think it's a picture of the church. I think you're gonna see the church as we get, even before the rapture, just split. You're going to have a worldly type church? Um, Yeah, it's already started. There's white witches all over the church. Are you aware of that? It's no different than the paganism and the Nicolaitans being, being merged. It's true from historical records that the Jews in Smyrna hated the Christians. They called them sheep. 
stealers, but according to their own law, the Jews did not have the right to be doing what they were doing. And there are many surviving manuscripts from the first few centuries that are proof that the Christians in Smyrna were constantly, verbally, and physically assaulted by the Jewish community. There's a famous martyr by the name of Polycarp. He's actually mentored by the Apostle John as a young man. And it was well known, well known that the Jewish population joined with the pagans to get Polycarp arrested. He was the, he was the bishop of the church of Smyrna. A lot of scholars believe he was appointed by the Apostle John. And even though the Jews knew he did not commit the crime, they allowed their hatred to override the teachings of the Torah. No Jew testified in his defense. And Jesus is saying it was blasphemous behavior according to the Torah because they were guilty of a righteous man's murder. And also Polycarp was martyred on the Sabbath with the full participation of the Jews who physically gathered the wood and brought it into the stadium so he could be burned alive. By gathering the wood on the Sabbath day, they were breaking the rules of the Sabbath. He, he said, very few of these martyrs are this well-documented. Little changes in things I read, but um, he said, no, you don't have to nail me to the stake. I'm not going to run. Just tie me. Tie me. You'll see. I won't run. And so... And, and, and the, you know, they gave him a chance or whatever to, to reject. Or he, he just said, how could I do that to Jesus Christ who has done so much for me? He says, so he said. And so they, they, lit, they lit, it, lit it on fire. And they're noticing, you know, if he's not nailed, he should be falling dead. And he's just standing there. Right? And he stood there, and he stood there, and stood there, and they just got so frustrated to uh, where they took a spear and put it into his chest to kill him. And so, you know, um, although these people were Jewish by birth, what Jesus is saying is their behavior was so offensive that he did not consider them Jews. And he called them the synagogue of Satan. And Jesus said, Jesus' words reveal that Satan operated in the synagogues of Smyrna. That in turn was the cause for a lot of uh, not just the Jewish but pagan adversaries of Christianity. And this is not the first time you hear Jesus talking like this. Uh, look at John 8. John 8 starts with the woman that committed adultery. You know, let him who has no sin cast first stone. So it started with that and and then they all left, and then Jesus says to the lady, who, who condemns you? She said, she said, no one condemns me, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. See, before she could go and sin no more, she had to have a gift of no condemnation. And, and, but then it goes, there's sparks flying, and if you get into the 40s in that chapter, because Jesus, Jesus calls them children of the devil, these are the Pharisees. He says, you're children of the devil. And they said, well, you're possessed with a devil. You're possessed. Think about that. That the son of God, who's possessed, right? And so that's a very interesting. Read, read John 8, 38 through the end of the chapter. And so this is not a, a, a referendum against Judaism, but I, I love the Jewish people. And we can just flip-flop that on the Crusades and see the Christians doing the same thing to the Jews a few centuries later. But in Revelation 2.10, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, that you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. The Christians at Smyrna had a lot of reasons to be scared, really scared, on the verge of panic. And there was no reprieve for them anywhere in sight. And history will tell you, when Jesus is speaking to John right here in 96 AD, that this kind of physically violent, economic uh, political murderous persecution was escalating for Christians at that time all over Asia Minor, but Smyrna saw the worst of it, and the fear that was, was starting to seize hold of their souls 
was because of the daily threat of some type of wicked persecution or violence towards them. And Jesus is saying to stand fast. In essence, he's saying that. Uh, Rick Renner says, in the strongest tone of voice available in the Greek language, Christ commands these believers to fear none of those things that were waiting for them. Huh. So that means you can get to the point where you don't fear it, right? If Jesus is saying, don't fear, well, he's not telling them they can't do the impossible. That means they could reach a point of no fear under this kind of duress. The word none in verse 10 in the Greek language, the New Testament was written in the Greek language was den. This word means immediate halt to something already in progress. It's almost as Jesus saying, stop the fear now. Like they were starting, it was starting to grab them. I mean, look at the day we live in right now. We live in a day when people want to be comforted and told everything will be all right. That they can somehow escape all forms of tribulation, persecution, and suffering. But Jesus knew for Smyrna the suffering was coming for them. It was not something they could escape. And, and, and you have him here really lovingly warning them so they wouldn't be surprised. So they could be prepared. He's trying to equip them so they could go in with a pre-decision to beat any form of fear that, he, that was grabbing them. And because these Christians and what they had already suffered, it was probably difficult for them to really grasp the fact it was about to get worse. As we start to close, I've never uh, thought four verses would take me so long. But we know the devil is going to throw some of them into prison, and then he's telling them, be faithful all the way to death. So he's saying some of them are going to die are gonna die. And these persecutions lasted for this uh, Smyrnaean church more than 200 years. Uh, they lasted in the Roman Empire until Constantine in the third century. A lot of scholars think, let, let's look at Revelation 2.10 real quick. That you may be tried and you shall have tribulation 10 days. They think this is 10 persecutions. This is a historically factual number because there are 10 persecutions of Christians by Roman emperors. This is not just 10 days. One scholar by the name of W.A. Spurgeon, quoting this again out of Rick Renner's book, A Light in Darkness, Seven Messages to Seven Churches. I'm quoting W.A. Spurgeon. The 10 days of persecution must refer to the 10 persecutions of secular history in which great numbers of Christians were imprisoned, murdered, and executed. Many theologians believe that this was a prophetic statement talking about 10 specific Roman persecutions against the church, 10 different periods of Roman persecution. And you can find that in the Fox's Book of Martyrs also. Jesus loved this church so much and the people in this church. He was telling them that he saw the trouble coming in their future as an act of love. He could see what was awaiting the church. What I would want to know. Would you want to know? I would want to know. What would you do? What would I do? I would... I would go to the word. I'd go to my knees. I'd say, give me what they had, right? Where I don't fold. You just don't want, I mean, I, I would want to know. I wouldn't be the one shocked one night and come yank you out of your bed, drag you out in the middle of the night. I think he was telling them this because I think the congregation maybe thought that the worst had already happened. And in his love for them, he could not help but to warn his people about what was coming in order to strengthen them, to get them to at least thinking about addressing that fear that was trying to grab them. I believe in the bottom of my heart, this is a message for the church today. And it is so important, I believe this is a message for the church today, that at some point, we're going to have a chance to choose at some point. 
and that the devil will cast some into prison. I, I believe it. And um, I'm sorry I don't have time to go through every single phrase here like we did in Daniel, but Revelation 2.11, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. What's he saying? He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear what? Be faithful unto death. Seek not the things of the world. Don't throw the incense into the fire. The things of the world pass away, and behind those things of that, this world, there is a second death. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has saith. What's that? What's the Spirit saying here? In the midst of this wicked, evil world, no matter what happens, stand. Just like Ephesians 6, three times, stand in that evil day. Stand. We're living in very serious times. Be faithful, never back off. Be ready. Be ready. Never let someone talk you down to denouncing Jesus Christ. If that struggle becomes so hard and you find fear gripping your heart like a hand and the spiritual battle almost impossible to endure, then look at him who walks among the midst of the candlesticks. That's the only place you can look. He will be there. He was there for them. He's the first and the last who was dead and is alive and holds the keys of death and hell. That's what second death is talking about in the promise to the overcomer. It's talking about the lake of fire where all the unsaved people will be banished forever and ever and he's promising you if you overcome that second death cannot touch you. And I just... You guys, I pray this, uh, I pray, can we put up Colossians 1, uh, 1, 1 verse 9 to start. It just changes prayer for me, because I pray this every day. You know, this is for, this is Paul praying for the church at Colossia. For this reason, we also, from the day we heard it, have not ceased to pray. That means they did it every day. Who? For who? For them. Did he mention them by name? No, he just simply said, I pray for the church at Colossia. That's what I do. You can do this for groups of people. And you can pray it over and over and over. Why? Because he didn't cease to pray. He never stopped praying it. Ask that you be filled with a full, deep, and clear knowledge of his will. Wouldn't you like that? But when I was praying this, this was actually yesterday in the backyard, and it just hit me when, we got, when I got to verse 11. Let's go to verse 11. I pray that we may be invigorated and strengthened with all power according to the might of his glory. For what? What did Smyrna do? To exercise every kind of endurance and patience, perseverance and forbearance and still have joy to face death every day? That takes on a different meaning when you're thinking of them, doesn't it? Opposed to your day? Opposed to what I need patience for? I.e. the assistant service director doing 58. It's not talking about that. Every kind of endurance. That means there's different kinds of endurance. Every kind of patience. And it just changes it. So as, can I just pray this prayer over you? Just receive it. You should pray this over your children every day. You should pray this over your church every day. This is how the church is being instructed to pray for the church right here. We do not cease to pray and make special requests for all of you and everyone online, asking that they be filled with the full and deep and clear knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and comprehensive insight into the ways and purposes of you and an understanding and discernment of spiritual things. I pray that we would all walk and live and conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing you, and have that desire to please you in all things, that we would bear fruit in every good work, 
and steadily grow and increase in and by the knowledge of him with fuller and deeper and clearer insight, acquaintance, and recognition into Jesus. I pray we may be invigorated, strengthened with all power according to the might of your glory to exercise every kind of endurance, patience, perseverance, forbearance, and do it with joy. I thank you for qualifying them, Lord, making them fit to share the portion which is the inheritance of the saints. They are God's holy people in the light. Thank you for delivering them today and drawing them to yourself out of the control and dominion of darkness and translating them into the kingdom of the son of your love in whom they have redemption through his blood, which means the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.